Hey CNFers, this episode is sponsored by Liquid IV, and I gotta say, this is a delicious way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities, or if you just want to zhuzh up your water. As some of you know, I'm training for the unsanctioned McKenzie Marathon, and Liquid IV is in my stinking bottle. It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan of the lemon-lime. Non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy, so you know your burly vegan digs it. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code CNF at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. Come, come. Also, requisite shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador. And I want to celebrate this amazing product. So if you head to athleticbrewing.com or use my specific referral link in the show notes and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast, but I just want to give you the juice. And all I get is points that I can redeem for beer and stuff of that nature. Give it a shot. I feel like every time I open up a document to try to draft something, it's like I forget how to write. Um, And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, wait, how do I do this again? Like, I don't remember and I don't think it's possible. Okay, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, that creative nonfiction podcast. Not that one, that one. The show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Awesome. Christine Yu is here to talk about her new book, Up to Speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes. It's published by Riverhead Books. Christine, Christine is an award-winning journalist whose work focuses on the intersection of sports science and women athletes. Her writing has appeared in Outside Magazine, The Washington Post, Runner's World, and other publications. She's a lifelong athlete and yoga teacher who loves running, surfing, and skiing. She lives in Brooklyn. There you have it, CNFers. If you want to be a writer, get your ass to Brooklyn. Do it now. Make sure you head over to brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. For show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. June's issue, titled Discovery, was a good one, man. Real good one. I put up a survey to see if you or the readers would want it more than just once a month. Maybe a mid-month dispatch that might deal with book writing research or best of riffs from the podcasts to make the newsletter kind of have more crossover with the show. The issue went out to 898 people. 50% opened it. Uh, There were 805 views, so I guess this is from other Substack recommendations and eight people voted and wouldn't you know four people voted for two a month four people voted for one a month so very definitive results rage against the algorithm still first of the month no spam can't beat it if you dig the show you might want to consider sharing it with your network so we can grow the pie and get this cnf and thing into the brains of other cnfers who need the juice leaving a review on Apple Podcasts so the Wayward CNFer can see a nice chunk of reviews there from what we've been working 
on for the past 10 years might, might, uh, might sway them. Attention is finite, and reviews of that nature will get people to think twice before they pass. It's also patreon.com slash cnfpod. Hey, if you have a couple extra bucks, if you have like a cu- one cup of coffee money, just drop it in the hat if you glean some value from this show. The show is free, but as you know, it sure as hell ain't cheap. Christine Yu, yes. It's one of several women who've written books on women's athletics and, you know, and running. Tangentially, hers is like tangentially associated running. I mean, there's running aspects in it, but it's more like an overarching uh, treatise on calling attention to research in women's athletics and the science behind women's bodies. And uh, like Lauren Fleshman's Good for a Girl or Allison Dacier's I don't know if that's how you pronounce um, her last name correctly. I will get that definitively on the record when she's on the show. Uh, she's the author of Running While Black, an, an incredible book. And then, and then there's Kara Goucher, who, um, who Mary Polan co-wrote that, that book for, for, for Kara, The Longest Race. There's a lot of good juice out there calling attention to marginalized genders and communities and endurance athletes. It's great stuff. And it's uh, illuminating, really illuminating stuff. And uh, Christine's book is especially illuminating. I think it's gonna, uh, I think it's gonna have a a real a lot of success on the long tail. You know, really germane. It's very eye opening, and it's a it's just a great book. So now I'm thrilled to welcome Christine Yu to the show. <sighs> been a lot of ups and downs um yeah i mean right it's like really high highs really low lows you know i mean as much as i think i tried to prepare for this too like nothing prepares you for it right in terms of you've i mean you know right like you're in the process of this you pour your heart and soul into this thing and you know it's hard not to then release it or it's hard then to release it into the world right and not pay attention to what's going on or you know stupid things like sales and amazon sales ranks and all of those things but you know aside from (laughs) when i put that aside um you know it's been great like i've i've had a couple of events and the one that i really love the most was i was out in berkeley last monday um and speaking at berkeley high school and it was a ton of you know, student athletes and their parents and coaches who are there and they were super engaged and asked really great questions. And it reminded me, I'm like, this is why I wrote the book, right? Like this is the audience that I want to be speaking to. These are the people that I want to be reading. Um, And these are the lives that I hope you know, we'll take something away from this book. Yeah. So it's a lot of ups and downs (laughs) talking to my therapist on Thursday. So (laughs) it should be a good session. Yeah, the, the riding those highs, like, and try not to be distracted by you know bad reviews on Goodreads or or in Amazon, and trying to like, it, it. Here's the thing, like you said, you poured your your heart and soul into this thing, and it comes into fruition. Here it is, like, and then it it is it ends up being it's kind of a flash fire. You know, you get kind of like two weeks, maybe two, like a month, really of of hot iron in the sun. And then, it, then naturally, things kind of tail off, and it's just like, wow, that was 
years of work and then all of a sudden it's you know it just then you start to fade for lack of a better word (laughs) yeah no and it's you want it so much to be like a success and obviously you know everyone's dream right is like coming like hot off the you know publication and making bestseller lists and all of this stuff but also recognizing that my hope is that this isn't just a flash in the pan right that this is something that it has a longer tail and a longer life and that people will continue to keep discovering it and finding it and reading it and recommending it. Yeah. But it's hard in our culture today, right? Where everything is about like instant success and like bestsellers and, you know, all of this stuff. It's, it's hard to reconcile. Sometimes. Yeah. Cause there's only a few books when, when you think about it, that, that just tr- truly, let's just use the bestseller list as, uh, as an example that, that, that stay there and glom onto the culture, be it like a unbroken or sea biscuit. Um, yeah, anything you know, like a uh, cast by Isabel Wilkerson you know, and uh, other, yeah. other books like that. And, but those are like unicorn books that, that really glom onto the culture. And, uh, and I think like your book, I think is going to have like a really good success on the long tail. Like it's just, I think more and more people will recommend it and put it in the hands of others. And it'll, I think affect change for, for, for years, I think, cause I think everything you touch upon is timely and timeless. Yeah, I mean, that's my that's what I'm holding on to and hoping, right, is that that it does have that long life. Now, I got to ask you, so you you wrote a memoir in high school. Uh, Tell me about this (laughs) memoir. Um, Maybe memoir was a little bit, you know, too generous (laughs) for description, maybe more of like creative or like, you know, creative nonfiction writing project. Um, But yeah, kind of talking about my both my identity as, you know, a Chinese American, um, first generation, as well as my dad passed away when I was little. So when I was Mm. eight and so kind of reconciling some of those memories and kind of his legacy and what that's meant to me. And I I like, you know, and I, you're reading this from your, from your bio and your teacher, you know, sometimes people will say, keep going and others would be like, Oh, that's nice. Uh, go, you know, go, go over here and color or whatever. And it's like, you know, you had someone in your corner there who read that and saw something in you. So what what did that mean to you? I totally didn't take it seriously, right? Because in my mind, I was like, what right write what? <laughs> right. Like like that wasn't a viable career option. And I also I mean, on the one hand, it wasn't a viable career option, you know, in terms of just the culture I was brought up in, right? And kind of the expectations of my parents. At that point, I thought I was going to medical school. I thought I was going to become a doctor. And the I think the other piece of it is I didn't know what that meant, right? To keep writing, to be a writer or to even think about that as a career. Like I had no real role models in a way. And it wasn't something that I ever saw myself doing or fitting into, if you yeah. will. Yeah. I remember when I was in undergrad, I studied, you know, biology and I had, I thought for a hot minute, I might want to go to medical, medical school or go into research. And then it just, it just didn't pan. I just, it was like, uh, when George Costanza kept trying to say he wanted pesto, he's like, why do I keep ordering pesto? I don't like pesto. And that was what like biology was like for me. I was okay. I like, I was a decent biology student, but ultimately I was, I was going to be enrolling in med school to maybe like impress people impress my father or something sure, and yeah. you know and I 
and I, it just wasn't it wasn't right. And I wonder wonder for you because you know you said you wanted to go to med school, but you end end up you know in your career as a as as a writer. So what was that you know watershed moment like for you, and when you made, decided to go one way versus the other? Yeah, it really didn't happen for a long time. So when I put off medical school, it was really because I realized I was you know, I was really interested in health and kind of public health issues, but not necessarily, you know, treating patients one-on-one, but thinking more about the system, the larger systems involved in how we create healthy communities, how we, you know, encourage health and prevent disease and, and the like. So I actually went and got my master's in public policy and worked in the nonprofit sector for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, something like that, before I actually made the switch into writing. And the switch to writing was a total fluke. Um, my husband and I, it was like the first vacation we took after having kids, we went to a surf camp in Costa Rica and both totally fell in love with surfing. And it came home and he knew that I needed some sort of outlet. He's like, well, why don't you try blogging? You know, this was back in 2011, you know, kind of the height of like fitness blogging and health blogging and yeah. all of that. And so he's like, you know, why don't you write about this? Because no one really talks about what it's like to be a novice surfer, right? There was all these blogs out there about like surf reports and, you know, all this stuff, but not really talking about the actual process of it or what it's like. So I was like, okay. And so that's how I started writing and got connected to this larger community of other bloggers and, and all of that. And I really realized like, wow, I really miss this type of writing and storytelling and connecting with people in this way. And kind of one thing led to another. And, you know, I thought, oh, there's a whole, (laughs) there's a whole field out there, you know, you know, about writing, about fitness and sports and science that maybe I could do. And so it was kind of, again, it was kind of a fluke, a lot of like lucky breaks. And, you know, I ended up freelancing initially for ESPNW, doing a lot of like gear reviews and stuff for them. But then it kind of just um, built from there. Well, speaking of ESPNW, there's a, I, I read your wonderful essay about autograph seeking. So <laughs> tell me a little, let's talk a little bit about some of your uh, great trophy autographs you've gotten over the years and, and then how, how you came to write that essay. I grew up in Connecticut. And so in this, you know, end of August, when the U.S. Open was on, we my family would often come into the city to watch the tournament. And I had this, this like sandwich notepad. It literally was like two pieces of foam that looked like white bread. And then in the middle were these different color pages that looked like, you know, cheese and meat and whatever. (laughs) But for some reason, like this is what I carried around with me at, you know, at the US Open. And my brother would go around with me and, you know, he would point out all of these players because I maybe was, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, something like that. Um, So he would kind of point me in the direction of all these different players and, you know, say, go get their, go get their autograph because, you know, he figured I was a little girl, like they wouldn't say no to me. Um, and it just became this like fun thing. Um, and I think, you know, one of the ones I was most excited about was getting, uh, Matt's Vlander's autograph. Cause like, I loved him as a player when I was younger, there was one time we were walking around, you know, on the grounds. And, you know, again, my brother kind of shoves me in front of someone. I'm like, I don't know who this is. And I got her autograph. I believe it was Virginia Wade. But the funny part was that 
they were also filming her for like, you know, some shots for TV and whatever. So I got to be on TV, which was fun. (laughs) So it's like some family members saw me there, but it just became this like tradition. And the thing that I came to associate with watching tennis at the US Open. And so when my kids were younger, I mean, I guess they still like doing this now, but it became this thing where um, I was like, oh, this will be fun. I can share this with my kids, this, you know, not only watching tennis, but this like, you know, going around and getting autographs and, you know, that piece of kind of fandom, you know, things have changed a lot in the last like 20, 30 years since I was doing this. And getting players autographs has become much more competitive and a little harder. So it became this thing where, you know, I was becoming obsessed with it. Whereas my kids were like, can we just watch tennis? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Cause we were just spending all this time running around. So it was a fun way for me to kind of think about how we pass on these traditions, right? These things that mean so much to us, you know, in our childhood or growing up and how we want so much to pass those on to our kids too and how the meaning kind of changes in the intro right um in those in those intervening years and how you know sometimes it doesn't mean as much for our kids and that's okay and sometimes you know vice versa it means a lot to them and that's okay too um so that was a really fun piece to work on I, I enjoyed it a lot. It showed a lot of, you know, vulnerability on your point, because when you got the the ball and you were like, I'm going to get these autographs for them. I was just like, oh, okay. I could see the turn here where it's like, oh, no, she's <laughs> she's trying to impart this thing that was important to her as a kid onto her kids who don't care about this aspect of it. And I was like, here she goes. She's doing this. She's like, all right, I got it. I came back. I got these autographs. And they're just like. We just want to watch tennis. Like, <laughs> like I just thought that was really I cool. was so determined. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then you wrote it towards the end. Like, I was hung up on trying to realize my dream of filling a giant tennis ball with players' autographs. And, it, like, it was it was your thing. And then they just were like, oh, let's go watch tennis. Like, we're cool with this. <laughs> yes. Yes. But funny thing is, is, like, that tennis ball is now completely covered with nice. autographs. My kid, you know, especially one of my kids has... has um, kind of adopted it so now that that's full i'm like i'm not buying you guys another giant tennis ball we are done with this we're just gonna go watch tennis (laughs) and uh you know given that you've been you 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 came to writing a little bit later and you know you've got a wonderful body of work across you know journalism and books and like brand stuff and uh, university stuff like that big kind of wide swath of stuff that allows people to, you know, kind of make a living as a writer. You know, for you, when you're maybe doing, a, lack of a better term, sort of maybe like an autopsy of your own own work, you know, what are the the flaws that you feel like you deal with and the self-doubt that you have to reckon with to, to get work done when, uh, you know, you're sitting there with your notes and, and opens and in a, in, a, in a cursor blinking at you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I feel like every time I open up a document to try to draft something, it's like I forget how to write. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, wait, how do I do this again? Like, I don't remember and I don't think it's possible. Um, I think that imposter syndrome is a big piece of it because, you know, I, did, I don't have a journalism degree. I've never like trained in this, if you will, right? Like I've never had a staff job. I've never, you know, been in like a newsroom environment or anything like that. A lot of, I mean, I've picked this all up on the job, right? As I've gone. Um, So there's a piece of me that always feels like, who am I really to be doing this, right? And always 
kind of afraid that I'm going to get something wrong, right? Um, especially if I'm talking about the science aspects of it. Um, so I, I worry about that a lot. And I fact check like 16 million times, I feel mm-hmm. like, just to make sure everything is correct. But I think that imposter syndrome is a really big piece of it because I always question, right? Like, am I the right person to write the story? Am I the best person to write the story? Why am I writing the story? Right. Um, and why will someone talk to me about this? And so that's always a really hard piece of it for me. Um, I procrastinate a lot too. I'm a very slow writer, both in terms of my on ramp (laughs) to, to actually sitting at my desk and writing. Um, and then the actual process of writing too. Like, I feel like it, like I wish I could write faster. I feel like my many things would be easier if I could write faster. How does your procrastination manifest? For a while, it was playing a lot of two dots (laughs) (laughs) on my phone just to kind of clear my head. It is a lot of, I will end up kind of almost like a tick going back and forth between like Twitter and and Instagram and like checking social media. And I literally have to block those on my computer. So I don't, do that and then leave my phone in a different room. So I'm not checking it on my phone. <laughs> That's really hard because when I, because what often happens is I will sit down and try to write and write, like it, it takes a little while for me to actually formulate what it is I actually want to say. And in that time, in that discomfort of not being able to piece together the words the way that I want them or the way that I imagine them in my head, that's when I will like flip to something to distract me, right. To kind of take my mind off things. So that's been, that's been a hard one for sure. But then it's also kind of recognizing that there is some procrastination like that, right. When I'm trying to distract myself from actually doing the work versus I don't even know if it's necessarily procrastination, but things like taking a break, right. And going for a walk or doing something else to take my mind off of it, because that's also when, right? The, the words and the, and the sentences and the structure starts to come together is when I'm actually not thinking about it so actively. Yeah. The forgetting how to write thing is so, it's so real. I, I'm experiencing that too. It, it's, it, it, I have a pretty short deadline with what I'm doing. So I'm still like, let's just say halfway through the research, but I do have to start the writing too. And so when I've sat down to write even just a page or a page and a half, it's almost like, oh my God, like I, I've been in like a research like boot loop for so long mm. that it's like I'm almost forgetting how to put that research into action, like into narrative, into story. And it's, uh, I sit there and it just feels, it, it doesn't feel right. It's like the guitar is not in tune and I, I, I don't know how to get it in tune. <laughs> is that something you kind of experienced yeah. too? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think, you know, going from writing articles, like, at a pretty regular clip, right? And you're just in that process of doing it, researching, writing, researching, writing, and editing and all of that to then going to a longer project like a book where, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I didn't have to do as many like freelance articles or assignments during the process of writing the book. And then, like you said, having to sit down, it's like, oh, I I haven't used this muscle in a really long time. I don't know how to use it anymore or how to warm it, even warm it up. Right. And that took a a while to, to figure out again. Right. Like, like you said, how do you put that research together into a compelling narrative and a story and a structure? And then what I'm finding now is that coming off of doing a, a book length project and writing 
a, a lot, <laughs> a lot of words on this thing is then how do I, how do I then transition back to writing shorter pieces, right? Yeah. Where I only have 1200 words. I'm like, well, how can I say anything in 1200 yeah. words? <laughs> Which is weird, but, you know, but it's, but it is right. It's, it's what your brain starts to get accustomed to. When you were, you know, setting down to write the book and you know, it is especially early on when you kind of have an idea of where you want to go with the whole thing, but it's, it's so daunting. It's whatever it's 80 or 90,000 words. It's long. You've got all this research and it just, even writing 500 words as it's, it's progress, but it, it, it is pushing up against a mountain. It still doesn't feel like much. How did you just reckon with the feeling of it just never felt like you were making progress, but you still just had to keep showing up? Yeah, I think for me, what was helpful was um, just thinking about things in chapters, because in my book, each chapter is fairly self-sufficient um, in that it, it they each tackle a, a specific topic, right? So whether it's the menstrual cycle or endurance or injury or something like that. So I could... I could separate that, right? Could I could think about that as a discrete piece, um, and in the back of my mind too, I also had just an internal deadline, timeline, thinking that I had about, you know, roughly a month to to draft, to research and draft each of these each of these chapters because I worked on it, you know, chapter by chapter. Mm -hmm. Having those two things was definitely helpful, but it was hard, right? It was hard to keep that motivation going or think about how I had so much research, how I was going to be able to boil that down into, you know, what, seven, 8,000 words per chapter or something like that. But it, it, it was just trying to, again, you know, breaking it down into individual chapters and then from there, breaking it down into individual sections, right? So trying to make it as small as possible that my brain could actually wrap it, wrap around that um, and not get overwhelmed in thinking about this larger, bigger thing that I eventually have to complete. Did you find yourself, for the sake of it getting work done, that you could write more modularly? Like you could go, you kind of jump around, you know, maybe I'm, this chapter, I'm going to write chapter eight today, but maybe I'm going to go back and do chapter three next week or something. Um, I didn't do that so much because I, for me, and just the way my brain works, it, I needed to be like fully immersed in that one mm -hmm. thing in order to kind of make sense of it. Because again, it felt like it took me a little while to get to the heart of what I wanted to say in each chapter, because I would start off with, you know, some idea about what I thought this chapter would be about um, and start to, you know, piece together the anecdotes and the research and all of that. But then as I got more into it, I'd be like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> this is actually what the chapter is about. And I felt I realized that I needed to be fully immersed in that in the the chapter I was working on. So it was hard to me, for me to kind of like pull out and work on, on different, different chapters while I was working on one main chapter. And over the course of the book to you, you talk about, you know, reading, you know, scientific articles, you know, stuff steeped in, in uh, research ease, you know, it's, it's stuff that doesn't read particularly easy and it's hard to read for someone out there who might be looking to read that kind of, kind of stuff and try to glean the greatest amount of insight from it. How can we as researchers and writers uh, be more scientifically literate when it comes to these papers? That's a great question. I mean, it, yeah, those papers 
are not the most reader friendly. If you're right. not in that field, um, I had to make sure that I was reading them probably earlier on in the day versus in the afternoon or evening, because it would just put yeah. me to sleep. But I think, you know, I know for myself, the tendency was initially, right, when I was getting into the this field was like primarily looking at the abstract, right? That's that's largely what a lot of us have access to because not all papers are available. But I think it is looking at, you know, really trying to understand the context in which that study is being done. So what I mean by that is understanding like what's been done before, kind of w- what gap this, this study is trying to fill or what they're trying to confirm. Because a lot of times it, it is like verifying, you know, some other finding or or, or something like that. So really understanding that context, right? And then looking at, for me, it's it's also looking at the discussion section. Yes, obviously the results matter, but sometimes if you're not as seeped in the science or kind of statistics and all of that, those the results can be a little confusing, right? But just looking at the discussion section and really trying to understand, you know, what, again, what it is that they were pulling out of this, what was their significant findings, what was surprising about that. Those were kind of the key pieces for me in trying to understand understand this work a little bit better. And it was hard, right? Because there are so many studies out there and a lot of the studies can be like really small, like 10 people. So what's the significance of that, right? Like, can we really draw any broader conclusions when you're only looking at, you know, an N of 10 um, versus something that's, you know, larger population based? So it is a lot of like puzzle piecing together. Why is this important? What's the context of this? Why is this significant or or surprising, does this confirm or, you know, refute some, some previous findings. And actually towards the end of the, the book, in your conclusion, you said you wrote while writing this book, one question kept ringing in the back of my mind. What do we miss when we understudy women? So I just wanted to maybe have you expand on that as a kind of a, a launching pad into the, really the, you know, the content in, of this book. Yeah. So, I mean, the vast majority of, sports science and exercise physiology studies are conducted with male participants. And they tend to be a lot of times pretty young men, right? Like young collegiate athletes. And so if you think about that, you know, not only is it looking primarily at men, which is, you know, 50% of the human population, you're also looking at a pretty narrow sliver of that population, right? And yet we use all of these studies to then draw broader conclusions about fitness and exercise and how bodies adapt to training, how bodies perform, how bodies get injured or can recover from injury. So it raises the question, right? Like when we just study one segment of the population, it's kind of, it's creating a sampling bias, right? Like it's skewing our understanding of what's considered normal physiology because we're, we're basing what we think is normal for everyone on this small sliver of population. Um, so, you know, the question then is, is like, what, like you said, like, what are we missing when we don't study women or when we don't actually include more diverse populations in our scientific studies? And, you know, <laughs> I think my answer is like, we, we miss a lot, right? We miss a lot of potential insights into, you know, the diversity of how human bodies train and adapt to training and perform and recover from injury because their humans are so diverse and so interesting. And so when we, when we include women and when we include more diverse populations, we can actually increase our understanding of 
humans as a whole, right? Um, in terms of, of all of these questions, I think that we're interested in. Going to the beginning of the book, you know, a big reason why that women aren't included in studies was just like, well, women are complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I pretty much asked most of the researchers and that's what they would say. It's like, well, you know, people would say that women are complicated and it is largely because, you know, female bodies have menstrual cycles and with the menstrual cycle, hormones fluctuate up and down and kind of in various ways, you know, throughout the month. And which, you know, on the surface makes sense, right? Like if you're thinking about a scientific study, if you're trying to understand how a specific hormone or molecule or molecular mechanism works, you want to try to eliminate as much noise, right, in your data or external variables in your data that could affect what happens. And so it makes sense in a way that you don't want a fluctuating hormonal environment in the background because that makes it harder to then interpret the results. Um, but I feel like that's become a pretty blanket excuse, if you will, or a lazy excuse, um, for not including women because, you know, frankly, that fluctuation a is, could be potentially interesting, but it could also speak that you're maybe kind of being a lazy scientist, right? Because it is more cumbersome. It does require a little bit more work and planning and logistics to account for those, you know, those hormonal differences, but it can be done and people do do it. But yes, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the traditional reason why, but you know, there's, there's a lot of other kind of factors I think that play into it as well. You know, if you think about funding and who's funding sports science research, it's largely, you know, institutions like the NCAA or the NFL or NBA um, who tend to prioritize male sports, right? Because that's, their main revenue stream. So they want to understand how male athletes uh, can perform and how they can keep them healthy. But if you also just think about like the history of the sports science field itself and how it's set up, and it was mostly men who were scientists leading these studies. And again, they were mostly studying the athletes around them who at the time were men. And so it just created the standard methodology that gets passed down through the years that we don't even think about, right? Like that's just the way things are done. So it just becomes the way things are done. Yeah. To your, to your point about you know, lazy science or lazy scientists, I, I feel like it's, you know, they, they're doing the research on men. They're like, all right, women are just little men. We're just going to overlay our results on, on that. And it just, it doesn't work or compute. And sure, it, I guess in the, in the initial goings, when you're trying to establish some degree of, of baseline, it, uh, yeah, maybe at first there's going to be some growing pains, but you need to like put in that foundational work and then you can start to ratchet up and maybe get a bit more nuance with the, with those studies. But I guess they're using complication as a, as, as a, as a crutch to just not, to not start. And I'd like to think, and I think your book reveals that at least we're starting to get past that. Right. Yeah. I think we definitely are as more people recognize the importance of, studying women, studying other populations, um, as well as the limitations of these studies when we only include, you know, one gender, one sex. Um, so there are, it's been really exciting to see how much interest there has been in studying, you know, female athlete health um, specifically, and, you know, the number of researchers that are starting to go into the field that are really trying to expand the evidence base and literature in this area. It's, it's been super exciting. 
you know, not only in terms of the work that they're doing, but also the work that they're trying to do in terms of changing some of those systems, right? In that might make it hard for a scientist to want to study women. What I mean by that is, you know, providing standardized definitions of what different menstrual cycle phases mean, or including, you know, suggestions for how to standardize protocols or methodology so that it's right there in front of you, right? You can't say, I don't know how to do it um, because people are, are suggesting this is how, this is the gold standard for how to account for menstrual cycles in the, in these studies. So there you go, right? Like it's, it's right there for you. Maybe you can define for us the female athlete triad and, you know, how that tends to shape, uh, you know, women's performance. What, what, what happens when like those, those things get a, can be a, exploited uh, to you know, turn the dial on athletic performance, but often and almost exclusively at the detriment of the individual athlete. Yeah. So the female athlete triad is this, you know, constellation of three, you know, kind of areas. One is, you know, bone health and bone mass density. The other is like nutrition or what's called energy availability, which is essentially, you can think about it as like the fuel you have in your gas tank uh, to power your daily activities as well as your exercise and training. And then the third piece of it is really around um, hormonal health. And that usually is thought about in terms of like menstrual cycles. And again, if you have a normal menstrual cycle or if there's any menstrual cycle dysfunction. Um, and so what scientists have realized at first, they noticed that, um, you know, for some kind of high level athletes, they started noticing these like menstrual cycle dysfunctions, right? Like that the menstrual cycle would be absent or very irregular. And they also noticed that, you know, these athletes tended to have, you know, pretty low bone mass density and were at risk of osteoporosis at a pretty young age and also experiencing, right, like stress fractures and the like. And what they noticed was that when they looked at the blood of these athletes, it looked like they were starving. So then that made scientists start to look into, right, like, well, what role does nutrition play? And so what it turns out is that when the body doesn't have enough energy, you know, not only to live, but to, you know, exercise and, and, and train, it's smart, right? Like it thinks it's starving and it, it starts to shut down non-essential systems and really focus on the, the systems that it needs to survive because our bodies want to survive, so one of the things that starts to shut down are things like the reproductive system and growth, you know, and growth systems and the like. And so the problem is, is when you start to shut down the reproductive system, you're shutting down the menstrual cycle. And so you're also, you're starting to lower the levels of hormones in the body. And the reason that's important is because hormones like estrogen and progesterone, yes, they coordinate the fertility cycle in a woman's body, but they have really important jobs in other systems. So it affects things like bone health and your ability to maintain bone mass. It affects things like cardiovascular health and, you know, muscle mass. So all of these things that potentially have long-term health detriments. Um, and that's why people are really concerned and really kind of focused on the menstrual cycle is because sure, it may, you know, mean that you might not have a period, which on the surface seems like no big deal. But the fact is, is that it can lead to these longer term health problems. It can lead to, you know, early onset osteoporosis. It can lead to cardiovascular disease. Um, and these are all major issues, but we don't 
think about it in that way. We only think about the menstrual cycle in terms of, like I said, reproduction. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the big misconceptions out there is that, you know, people don't realize how important these home hormones are to overall health as well as to athletic performance. Yeah. And, and Lauren Fleshman's book that came out this year, you know, Good for a Girl, you know, she talks about how, you know, for a time she had good eating habits and stuff, stuff of that nature, but she might be racing against someone who she could tell was disordered eating and, and she, you know, she couldn't beat her. And it's like, okay, well now here comes the arms race. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, now I need to starve myself to maybe clip off three pounds and, or, or whatever. And yet you get a short boost But as you as you've described, like that short boost is at the detriment of so many other functional systems in the body. And it just it starts to spiral and we see just total body breakdowns. And Lauren, she writes about she had she had it all the 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 loss of menstrual cycle, disordered eating. And, you know, she was developing foot injuries and uh, bone breaks. And it's just like, wow, like for the short term, yeah, maybe you get a little speed, but in the long term, you know, look what it does to a career. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the hardest things, right? Is because, you know, we want, or we see that short term boost or that, that initial boost in performance. And it's so attractive, right? Like it's, it's, you know, so appealing and it's what we often chase. Like, especially if you are an elite athlete or performance driven in any sort of way, you're chasing those, you know, those margins, those wins and all of that. And yeah, not necessarily always thinking about in the longer term, how that might actually be setting your body up for a big breakdown in the end. Right. Um, And so if we think about how, if we want people to be athletes over the, over their life, you know, the span of their entire life, if we want them to progress, right. More than just their high school years, um, then we do need to think about these longer term health issues, right? We do need to think about how we can set, you know, girls and, you know, women and frankly, boys too, right? How we can set them up for this longer term development um, and not always chase that shiny gold star that's just, you know, on the horizon. Yeah. Cause that, that short term stuff, it's, what's maddening about it I mean you kind of saw this with baseball too it's just like well that guy ahead of me is taking steroids like I don't want to but if I don't I can't keep pace and then I'm gonna I'm not gonna get called up and my career will end because some guy ahead of me was cheating so now I have to cheat just to keep pace and you know and you kind of see that with the the running too because maybe if Lauren or Kara Goucher or Allison Phoenix is behind someone like if they don't beat that person then maybe they lose their endorsements or something and all, all of a sudden it's like my career is over because I was trying to treat myself a little, with a bit more respect and my long-term health. But if I don't do this in the short term, even at my own physical detriment, I might be out of a job essentially. Yeah. And I mean, I think you also see it now in youth sports too, right? Like with all of this focus on early specialization and I mean, you have like six-year-olds, eight-year-olds playing in like travel teams and like, you know, like traveling, you know, to these tournaments and stuff. I'm like, well, can we, can we just have (laughs) rec leagues for our little kids? But like, you see it then too. And it's, it seems like it's, you know, that drive for success in that competitive environment is, you know, being pushed down younger and younger. And I worry about that, right? Like I worry about what 
that's setting this generation of kids up for in the longer term, you know, because as a parent, I want my kids to be happy. I mean, a happy and healthy, but I want them to love sports and moving their bodies, you know, for the long term. I don't want them to be burnt out by it. I don't want, obviously, don't want them to be injured either. But I worry that we're kind of the system that we have now is setting that up because we we focus on things like oh the co- you know the college scholarship or you know this person is the best at ten years old or something like that, <laughs> which I don't I mean frankly don't think it means that much. You know, it, intuitively, you know, as as a you know as a woman, I'm sure like you just knew a lot of these issues were ignored and or brushed under the rug or just kind of or, or dismissed more or less. But as you d- dove into the research and, you know, we're really embarking on this project, you know, to, to what extent did your research just start to maybe, I don't know, uh, it just confirmed what you kind of intuitively knew, but also like probably pissed you off. Yeah. I mean, I think for sure the kind of ignorance maybe around the menstrual cycle was something that kind of made me mad. It's something that I, you know, I really wish that I knew earlier how that and how good nutrition and all of that could potentially affect my bone health, right? Like rather than learning about it when I'm like in my late thirties or forties, because I can't do anything about it now. And just, you know, I think the other piece that made me really mad is just the disservice that we do to girls and women because we don't educate them about their bodies just in general, even right we don't give them the tools and the knowledge to know what's going on, to feel, you know, confident that they know what's going on with their bodies too, because so often those experiences are dismissed, right? As either one-off situations or, you know, oh, that's not a big deal. Like for example, um, I spoke with the cyclist, Alison Tetrick, who, you know, was a pro cyclist. She does mostly gravel races now. Um, but when she was coming up in the ranks, you know, she would often complain about her bike saddle being uncomfortable and her bike fitters and the staff around her who were mostly primarily men would kind of just look at her and be like, it's cycling. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just kind of that's accepted. That's what it is. And so she just accepted that, but it ended up leading to, you know, pretty major problems in her genital area, which required surgery, right? which we shouldn't have to, <laughs> that, sh- that sh- shouldn't be, you know, something that we have to resort to. So that, you know, definitely it's that piece of it that makes me mad is that we don't empower people to know and feel confident about what's going on in their bodies so that they can advocate for themselves so that they can make the best decisions for themselves, you know, whether it's in terms of training or injury prevention or even, you know, just how they go about their sport. Right. Uh, there was a part in the book too where you can where when you're talking about just the you know the yeah estrogen and progesterone you know the way the way they kind of flip flop uh, in terms of you know, the how they ramp up and ramp down and then in the like periodically there you can there are certain elements where you might have better performance or lesser performance and you can kind of like almost leverage the the cycle the hormonal cycle as a way not performance enhancing but you'd be like you know in this period here we can be training a certain way in this way we need to dial it back and i think in an individual sport i think that can be it can be leveraged as like a strength and not a, not like the weakness that is just like blanketly categorized as 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it just speaks to that ability to tune into what your body is doing and trying to tell you, right? Like how it does respond to things like the menstrual cycle, um, what symptoms you might be experiencing at different parts of the different, uh, you know, parts of the cycle or across the month, because those are things you can pay attention to. And those are things that you could potentially, you know, mitigate some of those symptoms, you know, as simple as, you know, sleeping a little bit more or paying a little bit more attention to your recovery routine. If you are, you know, you find that you, you know, have a harder time recovering at certain parts or like right before your period, say, or you're more sore at that point. But those are things that you can actually be proactive about versus where right now I feel like a lot of the the attitude is kind of like, well, you just got to suck it up, right? Like right. that's just part that's just part of it and you have to suck it up. There's nothing you can do about it because, you know, there is no, not even cure, but there is, there is no good kind of symptom management protocol right now for like, you know, menstrual cycle related symptoms or PMS or any of that. Um, it's just something women just, you just have to deal with. And that's what we just expect is we just have to deal with it. Yeah. And there's a, you know, a moment in the book too, where you talk about, uh, you know, sports bras. And I think Lauren writes about this too, in her book. And, you know, it ends up becoming, uh, like a, a barrier to entry, especially for, for women of like different, different shapes and sizes and backgrounds and, and being self-conscious and, and everything. And I wonder if you could speak to maybe that as a barrier, but also other ways that to lower the barrier and to keep women and girls, uh, engage with their sports longer. So they get the lifetime benefit of it instead of abandoning it, maybe when they're 12 or 13. Yeah. I mean, you know, sports bra is a, is a huge barrier for like one in two adolescent girls. They've cited that breasts and like whether it's breast pain or embarrassment about how their, you know, breasts move when they're active, um, not having access to a sports bra, though that they've cited that as like a reason why they don't participate in sport or why they've dropped out of sport. So that's pretty significant, right? Um, yeah. But I often think that, you know, when girls or women cite breasts as a reason why it's kind of, again, it's written off as like, oh, you're just being, you know, silly or vain, or it's not that big of a deal. Um, but the reality is, is that breast pain and breast biomechanics a hundred percent affects, you know, your experience and it can affect everything, you know, even like your biomechanics when you're running, if you're not wearing a good sports bra, you might shorten your stride so that you're not you, you somehow like lessening the impact on the, with the ground, right? So that your your boobs don't bounce around as much. You might um, kind of draw your your arms closer into your chest again, so you can kind of minimize some of that side to side movement. But all of those things means that you're not running necessarily very efficiently, right? So it's it's all of these things. But you know, the thing that kind of struck me the most when I was researching this is the fact that we really haven't paid attention to breast biomechanics until like the late 2000s, you know, 2010s. That's mm. when scientists really started to get, you know, the technology they needed to study the very intricate and complex patterns in which breasts move. And if you don't study those, that movement, it makes it really hard to then design a garment, right, that can then support you well or be comfortable or, you know, to minimize some of that pain. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the areas where like, it's always, it's just been written off as like, 
why would we need to study that? Boobs just go up and down, up and down. Like what else do you need? Um, so it's, 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 you know, kind of funny, but also not right. right. Yeah, that, yeah. that it can be dismissed as this, but it can be such a huge barrier. I mean, to your other question around what, what else we can do to help women kind of get involved and stay involved in sport. I mean, I think this also speaks to, you know, the question around gear too, and clothing, um, because again, the, the traditional way has always been to take kind of the men's design, you know, grade it down in size and then maybe add some frills here or there mm-hmm. to make it a little bit more feminine, um, change the color, and then be done with it without really paying attention to what um, women need or want from, from these products. And I think that for kind of straight size women, so kind of like, you know, women who fit in kind of traditional sizes, that you can kind of get away with that in a way, right? Like you can mostly fit in those in those um clothing sizes, it'll mostly work for you. Um, but for folks who may be, may be in bigger bodies, right? Like that doesn't work. And so we also need to think about how we can expand um, size offerings so that again, we can encourage a more diverse group of people to participate in sports and physical activity. Um, if we really mean it, if we really mean that we want you know, a, a more diverse range of people in the outdoors or doing sports, if we really mean it, that we care about all people's health, right? Like we need those aspects as well, the gear and the clothing and the shoes to be able to support people to do that. Because if you're uncomfortable, you're not going to do it. If you can't find the gear, you're not going to do it. If we can expand kind of how we think about those types of offerings, I think that would be a big deal. Well, not to mention that like a, a good sports bra might be as much as uh, a week's worth of groceries. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, that's a huge piece of it, right? Um, you know, and I think it's in part that I'm hoping that some of those price points, right, start to decrease as as more brands use the science, or you know, some of the some of the technology kind of starts to become a little bit more affordable. But but that's a big piece of it too, is that we need affordable gear um, because that also creates a huge barrier, right? If you can't afford it, you're definitely, you know, if that's going to be your gr- choice between a sports bra and your groceries, I'm pretty sure most folks will choose their groceries. Yeah. And uh, what, what got me thinking too in the, in the, in this book is like oftentimes, you know, s- s- talk about like overlaying the, the male sort of, uh, rubric o- over, you know, a a woman's athlete development it's like okay so like men go through they hit puberty in teenagers years they're they're starting to to grow their athletic performance is spiking and they tend to peak in you know early 20s you overlay that over over women and what's happening to their bodies physically and you know and endocrinologically and uh and, and and physically and it just it they don't align and yet like women are still on the kind of like the same athletic timeline as men. And it, is that, is that something you'd love to see addressed more with it? I don't know what parameters or how that could even be enforced, but to have the women on the same timeline as men is, is just patently foolish when you really look at the science and the performance. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question and actually something I've been thinking a lot about because I think when I first started working on this book, I almost assumed that it would be these like two separate buckets, right? Like the men's 
stuff and like their timeline and training would be over on one side and women would be on this other side and they'd be totally separate. Um, I think in an ideal world, obviously everything would be much more individual because every every individual's experience and development is going to be so unique um, that, you know, there isn't necessarily going to be one blueprint or one size fits all right situation for that's going to work for everyone, whether men or women. Um, but I think where I'm starting to land and starting to understand a little bit is that there's actually a lot more overlap between men and women, um, than we might assume, assume, because I think in our society, we think so much about like sex and gender as very binary things. Right. Um, but we actually, there's, there's, there, we all exist more on a spectrum, if you will. Right. Um, and that there is a lot more overlap between men and women and male and female bodies because we're human. Of course there are going to be differences. Like there's, you know, for sure there are differences, but I feel like we're, and one of the reasons why more research matters is because when we research, when we include women and study women more or other folks more, we can learn more about that overlap that could potentially impact everyone. You know what I mean? So like, because we've only studied men right now, yes, it is that we've developed this very specific timeline or training protocol, if you will, that is based on a very specific set, you know, of men. Um, And that's, I think, part of the reason why it doesn't always fit with women's experience. But when we expand that, that research population or that participant population, we can expand our understanding of humans as a whole and see that, oh, there, maybe there are more similarities than we might assume. Maybe there are ways that do, that do work for men and women together. And maybe there are ways that, that don't, right, that are going to be specific to men versus women. But right now, we've only just started asking those questions and trying to figure that out. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm very excited to just kind of see where all of this ends up um, and what we learn from this process. But yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a tricky question. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I have to I have to think, too, that as you're starting to see the the ratchet turn, you know, as an athlete yourself, you must be like, damn it. Like, why couldn't I have benefited from this 20 years ago or like 30 years ago when I was getting into sports and like seeing that benefit? It's, it's got to I think on some level, you know, you know, women of a certain age must be like, God damn it. Like, I wish I, I wish I could have had some of this knowledge back then. For sure. I mean, even for me, as simple as I wish that I had started strength training earlier or had been encouraged to do that more. I mean, I think I started really doing that maybe in college, but I was following like, you know, whatever program was in the women's fitness magazines and who knows, yeah. right? Like I didn't have like an actual program or protocol that was progressive, and, you know, that would actually help me, um, build the strength, like the strength that I actually needed. Um, but yeah, I feel like, you know, something as simple as that has so many benefits, right? In terms of not just athletic performance, but in terms of just making your body more resilient um, and preventing injury and just having those habits set up from the beginning that it's just part of what you do as an active person. Yeah, specifically with uh, with weight training and women, like for generations, it's like strength training is just going to make you bulky and which just 
it really isn't isn't true. Like even if you feed yourself well, like it's just not it's just not going to happen. It's going to help with bone density. It's going to help with so many other things. But societally, it's like no, you're going to look like Arnold. Yeah. You know, if you li- if you lift too much, and it's like one of those deals where hopefully the culture can shift. Uh, over over time, glacially, where something of like that will just be like, oh my god, I can't believe we used to think like that, but now now we're here. You know, we've moved the we've moved the ball a bit. Yeah, no, I definitely am really hopeful that some of these like social cultural issues or you know norms start to shift because I, in a way, I mean, not only with what you just said about strength training, but you know, even when we think about you know messaging around nutrition and what to eat, right? Like, I feel like it's, you know, women are constantly told that, you know, don't eat so much, but if you don't, you're digging yourself into this hole and then you can't perform or, you know, lift weights, but don't do so much that you, you know, look masculine, you know, or whatever it is. There's, you know, it's, it's, you're constantly trying to thread this super fine line between like what you're supposed to do and what society deems as okay for you to do. Um, that it's, you know, it's a wonder to me in a lot of ways that like women athletes have been able to accomplish so much and to do so much kind of given all of these pressures that are on them. Oh, very nice. Well, well, Christine, as I, I like to bring these conversations down for a landing, I always love asking the guests for a recommendation of some kind, just anything you're excited about that you'd like to recommend to the listeners. And I'd extend that to you as we bring our conversation to a close. Um, so I just finished watching Shrinking on Apple TV, which I don't know if you've watched, but it's fantastic. It's hilarious. It's with Harrison Ford and Jason Segal. Um, the cast is amazing, but what I really appreciated its treatment of, um, grieving. So Jason Segal, you know, his wife had passed away kind of before the show starts, but it's just, it's really funny, but yeah, kind of their treatment of grieving and, you know, as a parent, as you know, a child was, was really great. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your insights into how you go about the writing and this wonderful book you've written. Uh, Like this was a really great and I really appreciate your time. No, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. CNFers, thanks for listening. And thanks to Christine for making the time. We actually share the same agent, small world. Head to brendanomero.com hey, for show notes and consider signing up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter for book recommendations, a short essay, writing inspiration, and a series of links that go up to 11. First of the month, I think. No spam, can't beat it. Hey, no parting shot this week, CNFers. I got to get back to work. I've wasted enough time today, and I'm running out of time. And just typing that line and now reading it gave me some serious chest tightness. Every day in the 2 a.m. book panics. Hey, stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.